You're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For other resources, more information about this sermon series, or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. If you could uh, stand as you are able for the reading of God's Word. My name is Barney Giles. My wife, Barb, and I co-lead a community group, and sometimes we're downstairs with the children. As we read the scripture today in Matthew 11, 20 through 30, there's a Bible in front of you. It's also up here, or might be up here. But uh, but let's read. Um, as as I read as I read through this this week in in our community group, this has been a um, uh, realization and feeling the weightiness of the importance and the uh, soberness of of following Christ and what it really means. Matthew 11:20 through 30. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in in Tyre and, and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will be exalted to heaven. You you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by by, by the Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest in your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Barney. All right, I'm going to pray as we dig into this together. Father God, as, as Barney mentioned, this is just such a weighty, weighty word. And, and, and I pray, God, that we would feel the weight of it appropriately. And I pray, God, that that would lead us to a place of being transformed by your spirit, that that we would be led to this place of finding rest for our souls in Jesus, that, Jesus, you would take that weight right off of our shoulders. For people who are hearing this online or who are here in this room who are are carrying these kinds of burdens, God, that, that they're carrying the weight of their sin around, whether they acknowledge it or not, God, I pray that you would lead them to yourself, 
today. For those of us who, who have repented, who have turned to you, I pray that, God, you would break our hearts for those who haven't, that we might represent you well in this city that we love, in this place that we love. So transform us, we pray today, God, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I, I like c- trying to imagine what it would be like if Jesus came to Seattle today, if he were ministering in Seattle today, just like he did in Galilee in that first century context. You can kind of picture him, you know, down at Alki or over in Pioneer Square or on Capitol Hill somewhere, right? And, and I imagine all these crowds, just like in, this, in these stories, all these crowds flocking to Jesus, gathering to hear him teach, coming to him for healing, excited to eat his free lunch that he's sharing with at least 5,000 people, right? I imagine Jesus like has a, I don't know if, we don't have fishes and loaves here much, but maybe it's like he started a taco truck or something, and it's like, I'm going to serve up to 5,000 people today, you know? Um, but yeah, you could just imagine how amazing it would be if this was actually happening in the here and now. I mean, people would be going out of their minds because it would, it would be like almost surreal how wonderful it would be, you know? In fact, it would be what we've been talking about this whole series. It would be upside down. And Jesus would become probably the most popular person in all of Seattle. Can you imagine that? Jesus being the most popular person in Seattle. Well, if this were to happen, I'd like to also imagine what he would do next. What would Jesus do after that? Well, I think in in true Jesus fashion... Uh, he would make outlandish claims about, you know, his authority, about his divinity, and then he would press people to repent. He would tell them, you got to do a 180, do a full 180 in your life, change your mind about everything that you've been believing, about everything that you've been doing, declare your allegiance to me, he would say, above every other God, above every other person, above every other ideology, every other thing. And of course, then we got to ask the question, well, how would people respond to this? And I would imagine that they would probably be a lot like the crowds in the places that Jesus ministered in these stories that we've been reading. We, we probably see people, if we were there in that crowd, we'd probably see, you know, materialistic tech executives kind of meander off back to their money again. We'd probably see atheistic naturalists go back to their lives safe from all that supernatural stuff. We'd probably see religious fundamentalists actually leaving those crowds and returning to their controlling rules and and regulations. We'd probably see substance and, and sex addicts going back to their bongs and their brothels and their their digital brothels, that is, and 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 their bottles. And Jesus, at the end of all of that, would be left with this little, small troop of followers again. I wonder if, if you see yourself there, or if, if you've left. At that point, then, we've got to ask the question again, what... what would Jesus do after that? If, if, if all these people have left, if all these people have rejected him... What would he do? He would pronounce judgment on those who rejected him. He would say, woe to you, Seattle. 
who'd say, woe to you, Alki, woe to you, Capitol Hill, woe to you, Pioneer Square, woe to you, you know, Bellevue and Tacoma and Everett, woe to you. And this is what we see happening in our text today. Jesus pronounces judgment on the towns that rejected him. And I think it's meant to cause us to ask this question, would Jesus say the same things about Seattle today? Would Jesus say the same things about us, you and, and, and me today? And you see, the good news is, and I want you to hear this good news because we're going to come back to it later, but you might be really longing for it in the middle, okay? This good news is, is that he offers us an alternative to being, as, as Barney just read for us, brought down to Hades, brought down to death, and that is he invites everyone, every one of you, me, everyone, he invites us to come to him. And he says that when you do, you will find rest for your soul. And so the question that we want to ask today is, am I under Jesus' judgment or have I found rest in him? And this week, we're going to focus primarily, as I said, on this judgment side of it, but we're going to actually divide this into two parts, okay? And next week, we'll focus primarily on rest. But what I'm hoping you'll take away from this today is that we exit judgment when we enter rest. And we're going to look at this in three different parts. We're going to look first at the cause of judgment, then we're going to look at the effect of judgment, and we'll conclude with exiting judgment. And so let's begin with the cause of judgment in verse 20. It said, there he be, or sorry, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not Repent. So let's begin, before we get into the cause, let's, let's begin with just kind of the context of what is going on here. And we see the context being pointed at with the word then at the very beginning, and that's telling us about what has just happened. This is coming in context with what has just happened, which was people calling Jesus a drunkard, a glutton, and a friend of sinners. All of these, of course, major insults trying to say about Jesus that, that he's not the true Messiah. And Pastor David shared with us that text last, last week um, where this was so much so as people observed these things about Jesus that he's hanging around with tax collectors and sinners and, oh my gosh, why is he eating and drinking all this? This grew so much that it actually even confused John the Baptist the guy who was Jesus' forerunner. And John the Baptist is sending a message from within prison. He sends a message to Jesus. He's going, what's going on, Jesus? I thought that the Messiah was going to judge Israel and everyone was going to come to repentance. What's happening? John was confused. And as Pastor David told us, he, John had the right events. Yes, the Messiah was going to come and judge, but he had the wrong timeline. The Messiah wouldn't do this until the last day, the day of judgment far off into the future. But now, here we are kind of in the middle, Jesus begins to prophesy about that day. He begins to prophesy about what John was anticipating. And, and he tells us here what the cause of judgment 
is? What, what does Jesus say is the cause of judgment? Right there in verse 20, it's a lack of repentance. As I said earlier, it's a, it's a 180. Repentance is a 180. Repentance is turning from living for you and it's beginning to live for Jesus, which of course includes also living for the sake of others. But today, I want to think about repentance as a, as, a, as a returning to Jesus, as an opportunity to find rest. That's what we're going to look at. Coming to Jesus. And we're, we're going to, again, we're going to come back to rest later. But for now, just consider what Jesus is denouncing here of these cities. What's, what's connected? What's associated with a lack of repentance? Well, it, it's, it's failing to find allegiance to him as Lord. It's people who have pridefully maintained, I don't need God. I don't need a Savior. It's really, it's a rejection not only of him, but it's a rejection of the good news about him, the gospel. And so if repent, the lack of repentance is the cause of judgment, we might ask the question, why is it that God has determined that we're going to be judged. In other words, why do we need to repent? And the reason why I want to go here for a minute is because I feel like this is the most challenging question for us as modern Americans today. We don't think that we need to repent. We don't think that, we've, that we're all that bad. But the answer that the Bible gives us is that we need to repent because we are fallen and sinful human beings. And I want to kind of go into this a little bit more in depth with a story. Uh, this last week, uh, a week ago Friday, I was spending all day with a friend of mine from high school who was in town. And uh, we had a great time. And in the middle of the day, we, we were having some lunch and we got into this really deep, deep spiritual conversation. It was a wonderful conversation. He, he's someone who's actually I would say grew up atheist, he's probably agnostic, um, but he would describe his spiritual beliefs as being kind of a hodgepodge of things that he's put together, okay? He's studied a lot of world religions and things, and he's, he's kind of put those together in his own little concoction, and, and in our conversation, he said that when we were growing up, he didn't want to be a Christian because all the Christians that he knew were square, Okay? And of course, I'm sitting there listening to him. I'm like, wait, I was a Christian when we were growing up. <laughs> and, and, I, and I said, hold up, dude. What are you talking about, man? I was a Christian. He goes, well, I mean, not you, but, you know. And I was like, oh, good. I'm not square. Great. Thanks. Uh, and, and, and he goes on and he says that, that now, though, as an adult, all the Christians that he knows are some of the best people that he knows, to the point where he kind of wants to be a Christian, but he can't bring himself to do it. And, and I said, so why is it that you can't bring yourself to do it? I mean, surely there must be some bigger hang-ups that you have than just Christians being square, right? And, and he said almost immediately, he knew right, right away, he said, yeah, I, I can't believe in heaven and hell. Because to him, a God who judges people doesn't seem like a good God. And he went on to explain, he says, God, if God made us, why would he punish us for being who we are? 
I think this is a very common line of thinking today. And I told him, I said, man, I, I think we have very, differing, uh, very different ideas about humanity, very different beliefs about humanity. I said, you believe that humans are fundamentally good. And he nodded, yeah, I do. And I said, but I believe that humans are fundamentally good and fundamentally flawed. And I didn't go into all the theology in that moment, but what I was talking about was that we've been made in God's image. The Bible tells us that, that we have been made fundamentally good, that human beings are capable of such good because God made us that way. And yet, we are fundamentally flawed. We, we, we've fallen. We've sinned. We're broken. And that Imago Dei, that image of God, has been distorted. And that's why Jesus came, to bring us, to restore us into the image of God. Now, unfortunately, this conversation I'm telling you about that I had with my friend, it kind of drifted. I didn't actually get around to asking him this question. I'm still really curious how he reckons with the evil that goes on in this world. You know, if you don't believe in heaven and hell, if you don't believe that God should judge us, if you don't believe that humans are fundamentally flawed, how do you deal with the evil that we see around us? I mean, come on. He's got to think that at least some people need to be punished, that some people must need to pay for what they've done, right? I mean, that's why we have a judicial system. And if you believe that some people should receive punishment, then you've got to sort out how, how, how should that be weighed. If some people are in and some people are out, how do we determine who does and who doesn't deserve judgment? Well, the Bible tells us that while we might not be Hitler or you know, Putin or something, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. Every single one of us is therefore in this category of deserving judgment. And we think, okay, fine, okay, yeah, we've done some bad things, we might think, but, but we deserve grace is kind of the other line of thinking. And, and friends, i got to tell you today, we don't. We don't deserve grace. As sinful sinners, we deserve judgment. That's what makes grace, grace. Can I get an amen? amen. <laughs> and as a culture, we just, we don't like judgment. We're just so scandalized by it. But instead, we should be scandalized by grace. We should think, how could, how could he possibly, how could the all-powerful, perfect, holy, righteous creator of the universe give us grace? It should actually seem unjust to us, at least at first. Because if God just arbitrarily decided to grant us grace, it would be unjust. But you see, friends, he doesn't. That's how good God is. It's not arbitrary. No, he grants us grace on the basis of his own sacrifice. On the cross, Jesus was punished in our place 
for our sins. He bore the guilt of our sin, and he stood in the way of our judgment. And so you see, his grace is just. His grace is just. That's such good news. And we receive his grace, Jesus tells us today, when we find rest in him. And here in verse 20, Jesus is saying, grace is only available. Hear me. Grace is only available for those who repent. Sadly, the people from the cities where he performed his greatest miracles, they wouldn't repent. And so that's what brings us now to the effect of judgment. Verses 21 through 24. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Okay, take a deep breath with me for a minute. There's a lot here. And to kind of dig into it, I want to ask some questions again, just like we did of those first that first verse that we looked at, just to dig more deeply. You might be wondering the same thing I was wondering when I first read this. I'm just going, what's with all the different cities, right? What, <laughs> what are all these places? Well, if you look at this map really quick, now it's not comprehensive. Not all those towns are on there, but a lot of them are. And all of these towns are in this region called Galilee, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, all places in the region of Galilee where Jesus had done mighty works, as he said, powerful displays of his authority and his creative power. And, and in all these places, Jesus didn't just go to the various cities that he's mentioned, but he even moved to the town of Capernaum for a while, we're told. He lived there for a short time with uh, Peter and I think it's his brother Andrew there. And it doesn't seem at this point in Matthew's gospel that Jesus has been to these other towns. You can kind of see Tyre up there on the upper left, and then Sidon's north of there. Those are modern-day Lebanon, the coast there. Matthew doesn't record Jesus going there until chapter 15. But what I want to say is that's not really the point of why these places are being called out. Okay, Tyre and Sidon in the Old Testament... Uh, were condemned repeatedly by the prophets, repeatedly condemned for their idolatry, for their pride, for their materialism. And so Jesus brings up Tyre and Sidon uh, as he's predicting that these towns that are full of godless people, these places, these uh, Tyre and Sidon are Phoenician, they're not even Jewish, okay? These towns full of godless people, Jesus says, will be more responsive to the call to repentance than all of these other towns that should know better. All these other towns that are Jewish and should be welcoming the Messiah. In fact, these powerful 
signs of his messianic authority, Jesus says, if they were done in Tyre and Sidon, Tyre and Sidon would have repented, he says, in sackcloth and ashes, which we're going, what the, what's with the sackcloth and the ashes? Well, these are just signs of repentance. They're an outward way of showing that you're sorrowful about your sinful condition and you're asking God for forgiveness. People in, in that culture, they would have put on this burlap kind of material for their undergarments, real scratchy. Can you imagine wearing burlap underpants? Okay. <laughs> Put, putting ashes on their heads. Why? To show God, I am so sorry for what I have done. God, I need you to forgive me. It's not too different from what we do in this season that we're in right now as a church. The season of Lent is kind of based on times where people would go through this time of repentance. Lent is a season of repentance. That's why on Ash Wednesday, we put ashes on our foreheads. You might go, okay, well, we've got all these other towns covered. Well, what about Sodom? Like, what in the world is going on with Sodom? You might be familiar with the towns Sodom and Gomorrah and Jesus here is making a reference to Sodom and Gomorrah from the Old Testament because it's a quintessential example of a sinful city. Think of it like the Vegas of the Old Testament, right? It's, it's sin city. Think of it as the worst of the worst. The most horribly wicked people lived there. And what did God do in response to their wickedness? Guys might know that story. In judgment, he rained down fire and brimstone. You probably heard those words as well from like fiery preachers, right? The fire and brimstone sermons, that's where that comes from. God rained that down to absolutely destroy those people and those cities. And here, Jesus declares of Capernaum that it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. You might remember Jesus even saying that back in Matthew chapter 10, verse 15. He said the exact same phrase, and it's just a shorthand way of saying, this is severe, severe judgment. You have to see how weighty this is, and you, you go, man, Jesus, why you got to be so harsh? What's with all this judgment stuff? Jesus, this is so heavy. But remember, this judgment is for not repenting. And so it's actually not harsh. It's just. It's right. It's good. Why? Because they rejected Jesus. I mean, think of it this way. Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity from eternity past. He lived with God the Father and God the Spirit in perfect, loving community. And as an overflow of that love, as an overflow of the love of God, the second person of the Trinity left heaven and came down to earth on a mission to rescue fallen humanity. And what did people do? They rejected him. They rejected him. Their iron-clad hearts were so hard 
that they could not receive the love of God. And in rejecting Jesus, understand, they're rejecting his grace. They're rejecting his forgiveness. They're rejecting the rest that he has on offer. One commentator I was reading this week, he was talking about how Jesus had done all these mighty works, all these wonderful things, bringing the kingdom of God into these cities. And he said, he has laid healing and joy at their doorstep like choice bridal gifts. And they have slammed the door in his face. It's not harsh. See, while Sodom and Gomorrah were evil, they didn't get to experience this wonderful thing that Jesus was doing in bringing the kingdom. They didn't get to experience all these mighty works and the casting out of demons and the the healings. And if they had, even Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented. They would have escaped judgment. And so morally speaking, Jesus puts Sodom and Gomorrah on a level above even the people of his own town, of Capernaum, where he lived. Why? Because rejection is worse than ignorance. Rejection is worse than ignorance. And it seems as though what we learn here is that on the day of judgment, on the last day, on the day when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, on that day of judgment, the degree of punishment will coincide with the degree of rejection. And so Jesus says to these cities, he says, woe to you. Woe to you. In other words, disaster and doom will come upon you and I pity you for it. So what is the effect of judgment? We saw it most clearly in verse 23 where it said, You, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. What's the effect of judgment? It's being brought down to Hades. It's being brought down to death. It's, it's, it's lostness that lasts forever, for all of eternity living not in significance like is sought out here, being raised up to heaven. No, it's being brought down into obscurity. This is a pattern that we see in Scripture that those who exalt themselves, those who try and take the seat of God and say, I'm in all power and I'm in all authority and I have the right to judge what's right and what's wrong in my own sight. No, 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 they'll be brought down. They'll be humbled. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. And Jesus is making a reference here to Isaiah 14 that talks about Satan having the same exact experience. He, He came from the place of heaven. He was one of the most beautiful of all of God's spiritual beings that he created. And that he fell down to Hades, it tells us in that story. And so the same pattern of Satan is the pattern that happens for people who exalt themselves. They will be brought down to Hades. Where are you at? 
Where are you at with Jesus today? Are you exalting yourself? Where, where's our city at with Jesus today? I think a lot like Capernaum, many in, in their pride think that they can exalt themselves, that they can have God's throne for themselves. They think that they can raise themselves up to heaven. You may think that. You may think that you don't need to repent, that you have got it together. This is the vast majority of our city, friends. We have more atheists here than any other city in our country. Over 75,000 atheists just in Seattle. 160,000 more people than that would categorize themselves as none, religiously neutral. And far more than that, people who hold to other spiritual beliefs. But more than just the, the statistics, more than just the categorization, friends, I, I just want you to see the moral brokenness of our city. God has made us flourishing. And we see the cost of moral brokenness every single day here. It should grieve us. And if you're here today and you're one of these nuns, not N-U-N, <laughs> the nuns, the people who say, I'm, I've got none for a religion, if you're here today and you're one of these people who would qualify yourself as an atheist or from some other faith tradition, I want to, on behalf of our church, I want to welcome you. We are glad that you are with us. We want you to know that as a church community, we, we love you. We want you to know that Jesus loves you. We want you to know that we love Seattle, that Jesus loves Seattle. But you see, friends, by and large, our city rejects Jesus. Our city thinks that it can puff itself up with more pride, that it can exalt itself to heavenly status. Our city should be repenting for its sin, but instead it celebrates it. Unless Seattle comes to Jesus on his terms, it will be brought down to Hades, just like he says here. It will be brought down to death. Unless you find rest in him, you will be brought down to death. Unless you repent, you will face his condemnation and judgment. And so the plea with you today is to exit. It's to take that off-ramp, turn away from your sin, trust in Jesus as your God, as your Savior, and as your Lord. That is the plea. 
That's the invitation. We exit judgment when we enter rest. So I want to look briefly at rest as we close. Because this is what you're being invited to. This is what all of us are being invited to today. It's the exiting of judgment. And again, we're going to look at these briefly now. We'll look at them much more in depth next week, these verses. As that time, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Listen, come to me, Jesus says. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is the most humble and the most gentle person who has ever lived. And yet, he is also the greatest and most powerful person who has ever lived. Jesus here has made that perfectly plain. That's what he's saying when he says that I'm, that I'm lowly in heart and I'm gentle. He's the most humble and, and gentle person who's ever lived. But then he says, basically, he makes himself out to be God. He says, the only way that you can come to God is through him. The only way to know the God who made us is to come through Jesus. Jesus is saying he is equal with God. And so how do we exit judgment? Through him. Through him. We enter into his rest. And he tells us that we can do it two ways. By coming to Jesus. He says, come to me. That's repenting. That's turning away from everything else in order to turn to him. But then he says, take my yoke upon you. And we go, what are you talking about, Jesus? <laughs> what, I, it, it, we, we can only think of an egg yoke when we hear this word yoke, right? Most of you aren't farmers, I take it. But a yoke is what people still use today to connect two beasts of burden, just like in that photo there. They connect them to one another so that they share the load and therefore lighten the load that the other one carries. And so Jesus is saying, if you yoke yourself to him, if you unite your soul to him, your burden will be light. You carrying a burden today. You yoke yourself to Jesus. Your burden will be light. Come to Jesus. Repent of your sins 
And when I say that, I'm not just talking about the big, big sins, the ones that, you know, you don't want anyone to know about. I'm also talking about those little things that you've just grown so accustomed to, you hardly even notice all of it. And take, take his yoke upon you. Let him be your guide. Go where he goes. Do what he does. Exit judgment and enter into his rest today. As we close, I want to give you guys some instructions for your community groups as you gather to, together this week. A couple of questions first. What are some hang-ups you have about God's judgment? I shared with you some of my friend's hang-ups about them. Some ways that he's like, I just cannot believe in a God who judges, right? Maybe you have some similar kind of hang-ups. What are some comforts that you have because of God's judgment? God's judgment is a good part of his character, and we should see it that way. And maybe there's some ways in which knowing that God will judge the living and the dead and put the world to rights gives you comfort and peace as it should. Lastly, we've been practicing this spiritual discipline of sharing your faith in our groups, uh, and so we'd encourage you to continue to do that this week as well. I'm going to pray, and then we'll respond to God together. Father, we thank you that you are a good God, that in your great power and and in your great perfection and righteousness, that you will both judge the world, but you also make an invitation to escape that judgment. And so we thank you today, God, that in Jesus we can come to you. In Jesus we can find the rest that our souls need. And we pray that we would do that. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.